0: It's good for a church to have a lot of kids going to children's ministry. Because eventually those kids will be here listening to the message, I hope. That's what we hope. For those of us who are sticking around and are not going to children's ministry or working in children's ministry, if you have your Bibles, you can open it to Psalm 73. That's where we'll be in this morning. Now, if you were here last week, or if you listened to Mark's message last week, um, from last week, uh, he's doing a series on Walk by the Spirit, and he did part one of a two-parter that he's doing on gifts of of healings. And in his message, he mentioned that I was gonna I was gonna do in the middle of that two-parter a, um, a sermon on sufferings. I don't know where he got that idea, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, A couple of weeks ago, uh, Mark had mentioned he was going to do this two-parter, and I said I had been reading a book by Paul Tripp called Sufferings, and uh, how much it's affected me and how much I'm learning about what's going on with someone who suffers and so forth. And I told him I was going to do something from that book, and he got really excited. Uh, You can ask Greg. Greg was there as well, Greg and April. And he was really excited because he goes, oh, great, I'm going to do Gifts of Healings, and then you'll do Sufferings, and then I'll do uh, the second part of Gifts of Healings, and so... I didn't want to say anything to him that I wasn't sure if it was really going to line up. But I'm going to trust God on this one that it will line up for, for God's glory. Um, but it's not specifically on sufferings or, or that part of it. There, it has to do with someone who's suffering or someone who is a sufferer. Uh, so we'll, you'll see what I mean and you'll get to, we'll get to it. But having said that, let me then um, read the text and then pray for God, preaching of God's word. And we'll go from there. Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked. Every morning. If I had said this. If I had said. I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me. A wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fell, fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes. Oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as fathoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast toward you nevertheless I am continually with you you hold my right hand you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory whom have I in heaven but you And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to anyone, everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father God, this psalm is so rich. So rich in areas to go, verses to 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 open up and to to investigate and to hear and to learn from. But Father, I ask Lord that that you help me not to be distracted by the richness of this, but to focus, Lord, this morning on what you would have for us focus on, and that I would be clear. And so that those listening and hearing would understand what you would have for them today, Lord. There are so many ways we can go with this text, Father. But I pray you help me with this one one way. Lord, bless us this morning. Strengthen me as I prepare to preach your word, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title for this morning's message is "The Sufferer's Envy is a Bitter Drink." The Sufferer's Envy is a Bitter Drink. Have you ever had a bitter drink? Have you ever had a bitter bitter drink? Well, what happens? Your face does this. You, your body contorts. Right. There's a reason for that, it's, it's a mechanism our body has in order to protect us from harm. Some mechanisms we have are learned, uh, like you don't run out into the, to the street after a bouncing ball, right? or, or even better, uh, look both ways before crossing the street. Those are learned mechanisms that we have, uh, they're meant to keep, keep us safe. Others are perhaps not learned, but we obtain them through common sense. Uh, for example, like like don't walk up to a lion with a t-bone strapped to your chest, <laughs> right? That that would be that would keep you safe if you didn't do if you didn't do that, right? Or if you want to get to ground level of a twenty-story building, don't jump out the window. Instead, take the stairs or the elevator, right? It, it, It may take a little longer, but it's much safer. These are common sense things, right? To help keep us safe. And yet, other mechanisms that we have are are not learned. They're not formulated by common sense, but rather embedded in our bodies. Like reactions we have when we taste something bitter. Ugh! Right? Most things that are bitter are poisonous, or can cause, cause us... Harm so, so, our body's equipped with receptors that notify us when we 're about to ingest something that might do us harm. They cause us to make faces and reject what is bad for us, or at the very least cause us to say with conviction, "I will never drink or eat or taste that again." Now unfortunately. We don't have these types of receptors already built into our bodies to help us avoid sin. In fact, just the opposite happens. We're generally drawn to sin rather than reflected away from it. But for those of us who are born again, having received salvation through Jesus Christ, we are given a helper, the Holy Spirit, by which we are instructed and helped in an effort To avoid sin. Having been justified by God through the work on the cross by Jesus Christ, we're no longer bound and in slavery to sin, uh, but we still do sin. But our desire now is not to sin. Our desire now is not to sin, but to put sin to death in our life. Not as a way of earning merit with God, but because we wish to honor him with our life. Psalm 73 takes us on a journey where in verse 1, uh, Asaph speaks the truth that, that God is good. That God is good. That, to verses 2-15 through 15, where he shares his personal doubt and turmoil about what's going on around him. Verses 16 and 17, where we see a turning point in his thinking to the return of the truth that he spoke about in verse 1, whereas in the remaining verses, he says again that God is indeed good. So my intention this morning is to use Psalm 73, to highlight a particular sin that shows its evil head when someone is suffering. And that is the sin of envy. And we do this so that we learn about this so that we're more equipped to identify uh, this particular sin in our own lives. So that we can, we can better fight it and work towards uh, putting this sin to death. Now, before I go any further, let, let me just say a word about sufferers. Those who suffer. And, and, and I, I forgot to mention this. I want to mention it now. I forgot to mention this in the announcements. Um, um, Seth is going to be having an operation in a couple of days, on the 7th of November. Uh, he's going to have an operation on his back, on his spine, to correct some things that, are, that he's been struggling with. And um, so if you want to gather around him to pray for him after the message, we're going to do that corporately. So I would encourage you and ask you to join us to pray for him. This is a very serious surgery. We certainly want God's hand on that. And, and there's going to be a, some recovery, obviously. So we want we want to pray for both Seth and Laura so that they give, have strength for, for enduring this, this trial. It's going to be a really difficult trial for them. So if you would pray with me and gather with them uh, after, I would ap- really appreciate that. So, okay, back to the message. Uh, so generally when you hear the phrase he or she is a sufferer or they're suffering, uh, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? Usually we think of someone who is suffering a chronic illness or someone who is very sick. We, we tend to tie suffering to something uh, physical in our bodies that is wrong or we tend to tie suffering with, to something that doesn't allow us to live a healthy uh, life. Um, and so we identify them as, as sufferers. Right, it's normal. It's ca- common. Um, I, I don't want to diminish the thought that sufferers of this type—that is, physical affliction sufferers—have it bad. They, they truly do, uh, and we should pray for and come alongside of those who suffer. And we should weep with those who weep. Romans twelve fifteen. But this morning, this morning, I want for us to expand our definition of sufferers. Beyond just those who suffer physical afflictions, I want us to expand our, our definition to include those who suffer in other ways. Because I have no doubt that if you don't suffer physically, you suffer in some other way. You see, Asaph doesn't tell us in Psalm 73 that his suffering is related to any specific cause. He doesn't say he's suffering a chronic illness. He says nothing about what specifically it is, but he does give us a hint as to the amount of suffering by saying in verse 14 that he has been stricken all the day long. And he is rebuked with his suffering every morning. So it is definitely something that is with him constantly. But he doesn't say what it is. So while we can't assume that it's physically related, we also can't assume that it's not and that his suffering is brought on by some other means. Something other than uh, physical affliction. So what other means are there? What other kinds of, of sufferers are there? Well, I'm talking about those who suffer discontent. Your struggle is with not being happy with your circumstances. Whether it be a job, your education, or how you're, you're doing in school. Perhaps your classes aren't going the way that you wish. Maybe you're discontent with your marriage or your relationship. Maybe you struggle with loneliness. Or you're just discontent with your lot in life. Or maybe you're you're not a sufferer of discontent, but you're a sufferer nonetheless because you're a Christian. Our whole series on 1 Peter was about living in a post-Christian world. So as Christians, we certainly see and are not unfamiliar with suffering. Christian life is not an easy one, and we will suffer. We are told in 1 Peter 4, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we will suffer. There are other types of sufferings. So even if you're not a sufferer of physical afflictions, this sermon can still apply to you because as a Christian, you may suffer in some other way. And I don't, I don't, I don't think that if you're not suffering right now, that you don't need to hear this message because at some point in your life, While you are doing good, you will suffer. So I encourage you to take this message to heart and be honest about your own walk and see where you can apply what is presented today. So let's begin with with point number one. What does Assoff say about envy? What does Assoff say about envy? Well, to begin with, Assoff does say that God is good. Verse 1, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's honest about his feelings and belief towards God, but he's also very honest about another thing. We see that at the beginning in verse 2, where he begins with, But as for me, truly God is good to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And then he tells us why. He says, for I was envious. For I was envious. I find it truly amazing when people are honest about themselves, even if it's about their past self. Isn't it easier to be honest about your old self than it is to be honest about your current self, especially when you're knee-dip in sin? <laughs> Asaph was honest, but it was about his old self. He was being honest about his previous self. Did you notice that when he said, but as for me, which, which you think sets him apart from those who are pure in heart, but he said he, said he almost, he said, I, I almost stumbled. He nearly slipped. I almost, I nearly slipped. And even when he confessed he was envious, he said, For I was, past tense, I was envious. But that just tells us that he's no longer envious. And it provides us a little anticipation in the psalm to see why why is he no longer envious? He was envious, but now he's not. Why? Isn't this exciting? We see, we see, we'll see why he's no longer envious later in, in the psalm, but for now, just just wallow in the anticipation that something good is about to come. So for now, let's look at the sin that he's about to describe. We generally hold fast. To the notion that the the righteous or the, the virtuous should be rewarded and the wicked should be punished. Not the other way around. We all think it. When someone does something bad, they should get punished, not rewarded. So when it comes to seeing the wicked get rich, that causes us to get a little bent out of shape. We start thinking, that's not fair. We start to complain. That's what Asaph is doing here. He was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He continues in verse 4, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. Can Can you hear the whining now? They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he goes on to get very descriptive of the wicked and how they get away with it all. But his complaint is not so much about what they get as it is with the fact that they get it and he doesn't. You see, he had a problem with the fact that despite their wickedness, they had prosperity, and he didn't. In verse 13, he says, All in vain. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent And, and for what? His biggest problem was that he was comparing his health, his wealth, or he was comparing their wealth, their health, and prosperity, his prosperity to his or his lack of such things, and it, it was eating him up. It was eating him up. Isn't that where we struggle too? Who doesn't struggle with the thought that God is not treating them the way they think they should be treated. Why do others seem to be having it much easier than me? My suffering, my struggles are much bigger than theirs. Can't you hear the warning? It isn't fair. Who's used those words before? It's not fair, God. The term for this is called envy. And envy criticizes God. It's a sin. We all do it. We all do it because envy comes, comes naturally to us. Look, we all do this. We evaluate. We all do this. We evaluate. Each and every day, for some of us, every detail of our life is evaluated. We try to determine if what we've done, if the decisions we've made are worth anything at all. What's my ROI? What's my my return on investment? In other words, what have I done? Has, Has the life I've lived amount to anything? What do I get for trying to live a good Christian life? Has the struggle been worth it? We all ask ourselves this question. Now, in and of itself, evaluation is not bad. It's not a bad thing. We evaluate things constantly. Do I like Pepsi or Coke? Would I prefer steak over over chicken? Uh, Evaluation helps us to make better choices. But when we're evaluating our worth, what must we also do? What, what must we also do? When we're evaluating our worth, we must compare ourselves to others. When we're evaluating our worth, we must compare ourselves to others. We cannot properly evaluate ourselves unless we compare our production, our worth, our value to someone else. That person over there is a good person. Did I do better or worse than him? Better? Oh, yay! Great. Did I do worse? Oh, well, that, that person is really, really good. How about that person over there? Did I do better or worse than him? Better? Yay! Okay, I feel good about myself. This is where we get ourselves into trouble. We will never, never learn the value of our decisions and commitments as it relates to us if we are constantly comparing our life to the lives of others. We will never learn the value of our decisions if we constantly compare our lives to others. And it's because we think that their life is easier or better than ours will think that their trial or suffering is not as bad as ours. And so we wish we had their life. This is envy. When envy gets a hold of your life, the more you look around, the the more you look around, the more you want what others have. Your disabilities... Your illness, your mediocre life, your whole hum life define your reality. And when you look at what others have, you begin to lose sight of the promises of God for you. Envy never rests. Envy never rests. It grows in your heart and turns into anger. At first, anger towards others, but then the anger turns towards God because you don't have what you think you deserve. This is envy, and it is a sin against God. And envy robs us daily from the goodness of God. Here are four aspects of envy that rob us. Point number two. Four aspects of of envy that rob us. Uh, Aspect number one: Envy makes us question our allegiance to God. Asaph hit the nail on the head when he said in verse thirteen, "All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence." He was pouring out his heart. He's saying, "All everything that I've done, it's in vain." doesn't work. When you're struggling with constant, unrelenting pain, or you're discontent with your current situation, your envious heart always shows you the greener grass on the other side of the fence. When you're exhausted from your trial and suffering, who doesn't find themselves throwing up their hands and saying, this is the thanks I get? I try to follow God. I I go to church. I try to live a life of a good Christian. And for what? All in vain. So that I can remain in constant suffering? The wicked receive blessings upon blessings. They get away with murder, so to speak. And the righteous suffer. Who wants a part of that? But here's the problem. The problem with this type of thinking is that it considers our faithfulness and our obedience to God as deserving of reward. Did you hear that? This type of thinking considers our faithfulness and our obedience to God as deserving some reward if we're going to be faithful and obedient to God, shouldn't we get something for it? Shouldn't we? As if we're making payments for some grand prize. As as though if we do the right thing, then we should be rewarded with blessings, right? And if we refuse to do the wrong thing, then we can avoid hardships. Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? I know you know this, but I'm going to say it again. Blessings are never a payment for doing good. And suffering or trials are never punishment for the wrongs we've done. You know why? Because someone has already taken away our punishment. His name is Jesus Christ, who took away the sins of the world. Aspect number two Envy is a worrisome burden to carry. Envy drains the heart and soul of a man. We're so focused on what we don't have, we miss out on what we do have. Envy robs you by causing you to desire and crave the temporal things of life. The things that will pass away and devalue what is eternal. Eternal life. Life everlasting. (laughs) Aspect number three. Envy makes your heart grow cold and bitter. Envy makes your heart grow cold and bitter. Envy never, never comforts your heart. Instead, it causes it to grow cold and bitter. Bitterness overwhelms The real burden of suffering overwhelms the real burdens of suffering and actually makes them more pronounced because you are not only angry about your afflictions, you are also bitter towards God for not relieving them and giving them everything else that you wanted to have or that you felt like you deserved to have. Job defines what bitterness is and what it does in Job 10 verse 1. God's word says this, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. This is what Job says. Job is not just saying that his suffering is hard, but he's saying I loathe my life. He's acknowledging that he hates everything about his life. Job's bitterness also changed the attitude of his heart. He says, I will give free utterance to my complaint. In other words, there are no filters in his complaint. And his complaint has free reign where joy And hope once lived. No one who lives like this can expect to be anything but bitter. Paul Tripp in his book titled Suffering. Which I recommend highly by the way. Gives an excellent word picture of what bitterness does to our view of blessings. He says this. Bitterness so obstructs your view of blessing that you can't see it anymore. Bitterness in your heart is like being in the darkness of your basement on a day when the sun is shining and saying, I hate the fact that I live in a world of darkness. You don't actually live in the dark world. Rather, the structure around you and above you is obstructing your view of the sun. This is what bitterness does to our life and to our walk, to to what's around us. Aspect number four of envy that robs us. Number four, envy underestimates the goodness of God. Envy underestimates the goodness of God. When envy causes your heart to look towards and desire what others have, when it points out to us that others are free of pain and suffering, when, when we can't even take a breath without being in pain, when we are discontent with our life, and we see others who have it better than us, then we lose sight of the constant presence and ever-flowing goodness of God. When envy blinds us, we lose sight of the ever-presence, and ever-flowing goodness of God. It is there. God is with you. He loves you. He will never forsake you. And yet, the envy in our hearts blinds us to that fact. And we become bitter and cold. When hope in, you, when hope in yourself has failed when hope in others has failed, when hope in your circumstances has failed, you need a rock on which to stand. Jesus is that rock. Jesus is that rock. He is the rock of our salvation, our firm foundation, who is ready and willing to take our burdens. He says in Matthew 11:28, 28, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The goodness of God does not fail when we are troubled or even when envy slips into our life and obstructs our view of blessings. Envy is a wearisome burden to carry, but we have a Savior who will give us rest. All the good you have done is not done in vain because it celebrates the eternal blessing that we have in Christ. You see envy envy robs us on earth, but envy is not eternal. It's not eternal. Point number 3. Envy robs us on earth, but it's not eternal. Suffering is so very real. It's so very real. It dominates you physically Emotionally, it even affects you spiritually. It never lets up. It's there in the morning when you wake, it's there throughout the day, and it's nagging you at when you put your head down to sleep at night. When all is still and quiet, and you think you have a reprieve, it rushes at you without warning. Lest you forget. Suffering is relentless. But when you pile envy on top of your suffering, your mind may escape the pain for a little while while you focus, while your focus is on what others have. Freedom of pain, a carefree life where you can get up and go wherever you want, whenever you want. You begin to wish for what you once had, but Reality sets in and you're quickly reminded that others have it better than you. Their life is what you want and since you can't obtain it, anger sets in and then all you see is your disastrous past and your painful present. Which leaves you without a functional future. You can't bear to think about what the next minute will be like or the next hour, much less the next day. You fail to fathom what a day or week of pain-free life would be like. You, you fail to remember what it's like to be content with your life. Because you're so consumed with your present situation, your present darkness. But what you have truly lost focus on if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, what you've truly lost focus on is your secured eternity. Your secured eternity. 1 Peter 1 says, An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You lose focus on an eternity promised of no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And a life full of joy and glory beyond compare, like it says in 2 Corinthians 4:16 and 18 through 18. So we do not lose our <coughs> heart, excuse me, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. My last point for this morning's sermon is then a return to the truth. A return to the truth. Verse 16, he says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned. Then I discerned then I discerned their end. Asaph had a new perspective after entering the sanctuary of God. He he came to see everything from God's perspective rather than his own sinful perspective. Roy Clements of, of East Baptist Church in Cambridge, England said this of Asaph's new perspective, linking it to worship. He said this, Worship puts God at the center of our vision. It is Vitally important because it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. His new perspective also brought about a new perspective of himself, which is usually less appealing than we'd like to think. Uh, In verse 21 and 22, he says this, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. How many of us, when we, when we see more clearly God's love for us, can look back and unfortunately see our ugliness towards Him? Apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we have no leg to stand on. We cannot bring our own worthiness to pay the price for our sins. Job came to the same conclusion that God's ways were beyond his understanding and he despised his pride and repented. Then verses 23 through 26 shows us a new awareness of God's presence and his blessing on his chosen. He says this, nevertheless, he just recounted all the problems he had with the wicked who had prosperity, his own struggle with that, how he almost slipped and fell. And then he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Imagine a loving heavenly father who holds your hand who guides you with his counsel and who receives you into glory because of his son and then Asaph summarizes the whole he summarizes the whole psalm in the last two verses he says this for behold those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. See, the wicked will perish. and God will be with his people and his people will be with him. As the band comes up, let me Leave you with this final thought. As sufferers, we don't have to taste the bitterness of envy and what it robs us, what it robs us of, if if we rely on His Word and the Holy Spirit, rather than relying on our selfish desires, our envious desires. He is our rock, our salvation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And drink no more the bitter drink. Let's pray. Father God, as we evaluate our lives, as we seek out cold heart and bitterness that envy has turned our heart into help us to cover that with your grace Father help us to repent and turn from our sinful ways Lord help us to recognize the glory that you've sent in your son who through him is our rock our firm foundation who we can, in fact, come to for rest. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.